the Water Values Podcast, Session 28. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGimsey. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. Thanks for joining me. Believe it or not, I'm still fighting the summer cold, so I'm again going to keep my introductory remarks brief. Today, Beth Tootlevy of the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District comes onto the podcast. Beth works as a senior environmental specialist. She's very knowledgeable and did a great job identifying environmental issues facing sewer utilities. And she even introduced me to a new subcontaminant that I previously wasn't aware of. So continue listening for a great talk with Beth, and please remember to listen all the way to the end to take in the all-important disclaimer. With that said, let's get on with it. Open the valves, fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. Well, Beth, thanks very much for coming on to the Water Values Podcast. We greatly appreciate your time. Um, To start off, Beth, could you please tell us a little about your background and how you got interested in water? Well, I think it kind of started when I was in high school, actually. I had a really neat opportunity as a junior in high school to go to a program that Ohio State University runs at Stone Lab. And so in the summer between my junior and senior year of high school, I actually um, spent a week up at Stone Lab taking an aquatic biology class. And so that, I think, is probably where it started. Um, From there, I went to um, Heidelberg College, which is now Heidelberg University in Tiffin, Ohio. And um, at Heidelberg is where the National Center for Water Quality Research is housed. And so I I worked there in the lab, and I um, actually graduated from Heidelberg with a bachelor's degree in water resources and in environmental biology. And so after I graduated, I got a job here in Cleveland at the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District. And at the sewer district then, I continued my education at Cleveland State University where I got a master's degree in environmental studies. Okay, well, great. Uh, Could you tell us a little about the background of the, the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District? Sure. The Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District is a large wastewater utility. It serves the city of Cleveland in 61 surrounding suburbs. Um, There's a little bit over a million customers that we provide wastewater treatment for. Um, We have three wastewater treatment plants, um, and they treat um, the smallest plant treats about 30 million gallons a day on an average day, and the largest plant treats about 100 million gallons of water a day on an average day. On a, we are a combined sewer community, so on a, or parts of our service area are combined sewer communities. So we can, on a wet weather day, treat close to a billion gallons of water. Um, the sewer district itself was established by a court order in 1972 Um, in response to some things that were going on in Cleveland in the way the system had been operated. Um, So, you know, if it was established in 1972, it was kind of right around the time of the Cuyahoga River fires. So this was just the last of the Cuyahoga River fires was 1969, and the sewer district was created in 1972. I was going to say, how in the world would you get Cleveland and 61 other communities to agree on establishing a regional sewer entity you know, but for the court order. I mean, very simply, there was there was the old utility before the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District 
um, was run by the city of Cleveland, and it served, at that time it was less than 61 suburbs, but it still served a number of suburbs. And they were dis there were disputes on who was going to pay for what, you know, the city versus the suburbs. And so a lot of that had to do with the court order, um, with the development of the court order to to kind of lay out, you know, how that was going to work. Okay. And a separate authority, separate from the city of Cleveland, taking charge of the sewer district. Okay. Okay. I, I know this isn't your area, but could you describe at least the governance? You know, how, how do all those entities get along within the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District? I mean, what kind of voice does each community have in it? Well, the way it works is that we are governed by a board, and our board is made up of members that are appointed. Um, so some of the members are um, appointed by the city of Cleveland, and some of the members are appointed by what we call the Suburban Council of Government, or yeah, Suburban Council of Government. And so that Suburban Council of Government is made up of mayors of the suburban communities. And so each, we're divided into subdistricts. Subdistrict one is the city of Cleveland, and subdistrict two is the suburbs. And that was set up in the court order. And so we have board members that represent each subdistrict. Okay. I, I know that's not what, what we uh, had talked about in terms of what we were going to discuss today, but I just I found it interesting, and I thought uh, thought we'd go off on that tangent here real quick. But what what is your position within the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District? You know, what is it that you're doing? My, my job title is Senior Environmental Specialist, and I work in our regulatory compliance department. Um, and so in the regulatory compliance department, we focus on – um, compliance with all of our permits, whether they're NPDES permits or air permits um, and other, you know, types of environmental permits. And then we also um, try to, to stay ahead of the rules and regulations and, you know, be abreast of what's going on in the environmental community so that the district is um, well positioned. And so my role in that department focuses on water issues. Um, and so, you know, I focus on making sure that, that we can comply with the requirements of our NPDES permits, which is our National Pollutant Discharge Elimination System permits, or um, the permits that say what is allowed to come out of our pipes into either the Cuyahoga River or Lake Erie. Um, and so along with being able to comply with our current permits, a part of my, a big part of my job is knowing what's going on environmentally to know what we need to do, what might be coming in the future, and keeping us well, you know, ahead of that game. Okay. What are some of those environment, environmental issues that, that you're keeping abreast of right now? Um, big ones right now. The past couple of years, I've spent a lot of time working on mercury issues. Um, and so now we're kind of in a place where we have, you know, mercury limits in our permit that are much lower than what we had in the past. And so, you know, we have a plan in place and how, how we're addressing those. But then I have also, you know, spent quite a bit of time um, with the issues surrounding pharmaceuticals and personal care products and how they move through um, wastewater treatment plants. Um, just within the last year, we started looking at this microbeads issue, if you're at all familiar with that. It's the little plastic beads that are in some types of 
soap, um, whether it's a face soap or a hand soap or even some, you know, types of, of soap that are used that are abrasive. Um, and then, of course, the nutrient issue, um, because that's always a, a pressing issue for folks on the Lake Erie Basin. Okay. Uh, well, let's take those in order. Talk, can you talk a little about mercury and why, why is mercury an issue for, for your utility? Well, our utility um, is in the Great Lakes Basin, and so the DLI, or um, the, the Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement, calls for discharge limits or discharges into the Great Lakes to meet a limit of 1.3 parts per trillion, um, and that's to protect fish-eating wildlife. And so our wastewater treatment plants, all three of them, have mercury discharge limits of 1.3 parts per trillion. Um, that's a very small quantity. Um, we use the analogy that a part per trillion is about the same as a pencil eraser inside of the Cleveland Browns stadium. Um, <laughs> and so we, uh, you know, we've done a lot in reducing mercury coming into our system. Um, and so we've, you know, we've worked with the sources of mercury, whether it's the industrial sources, there are, you know, a few companies out there that have some mercury. Um, hospitals, we've worked a lot with the dental community. We have somewhere close to 500 dental dentists within our service area. Um, and so we've done a lot of source control with mercury, trying to keep it out of the system. Uh, okay. Well, that's, that's interesting that you're working directly with, you know, the dentists, for example, what, how does that relationship develop and what, what kind of uh, outreach have you done with them? Um, so that was actually one of the first projects I really started working on um, here at the district. And so it actually began more than a decade ago when we, um, you know, when we started, we first started becoming aware of the fact that, you know, sometime in the future we were going to have mercury limits in our permit that it didn't look like we were going to be able to meet. And so we have, um, at the sewer district, we have a very, active pretreatment program, um, industrial pretreatment, where we address um, any of the industries that are discharging into our sewer system. And so as a class, meaning if we look at all of the dentists together, we found that they were a significant source of mercury that we could control coming into our system. And so we actually worked a lot with, you know, the the local dental community. We have a, a local association um, that is a lot of the dentists in our area belong to. So we worked a lot with them in, you know, communicating with the dentists and putting the story out on why it was important to keep um, amalgam or mercury scraps from going down the drain. And so it's been a progressive um, relationship over the last decade. And, you know, we started out with just you know, not rinsing things down the drain that don't need to be down the drain to requiring amalgam separators of all the dental facilities. Interesting stuff. Uh, let's move on to pharmaceuticals and personal care products. This is a big emerging issue. And how are you addressing it? And what are the microcontaminants that you're seeing? Okay, so the pharmaceuticals and personal care products, like you said, it is an emerging issue. And again, we're talking about quantities that are 
incredibly small, you know, even smaller than the amounts that we're talking about for mercury. Um, and so, you know, in mercury, we're talking about parts per trillion. And sometimes for pharmaceuticals, we're talking as low as parts per quadrillion. And so what the district has done is, first of all, we've been very involved with the Water Environment Research Federation in keeping abreast of, you know, what's going on, what's the technology that is, you know, you know, where is the state of the technology? Where is the state of the science? And so, you know, we've been involved in that and, um, you know, looking at also the uh, potential effects for these type of substances in wastewater. So if our wastewater effluent is in the lake, you know, are there, are there environmental effects or human health effects? And, you know, right now the research is showing that there aren't any human health effects that are linked directly to the presence of these compounds in wastewater, but there are some um, ecosystem or ecological effects that, that we need to address. So that's being done on one side. Um, one of the things that we did was we sampled um, our influent and our effluent and some of our local water bodies for a number of these compounds. Um, this is a few years back, and what we found is that we used two very reputable labs and we did some split samples and we got different results. And we weren't really surprised by that because we we're talking about things in you know such low quantities that very hard to measure for them. And so what we're able to do though is you know determine that yes, these things are present and have some idea of the concentrations and be able to put those into terms that, that meant something to people. And so in the same way that we say that the amount of mercury that we're talking about is the tip of a pencil eraser in the um, Cleveland Brown Stadium for, say, caffeine, which is the, one of the products that we tested for that we, we found in every sample, um, even at the highest concentration that we found it in, it would take you, if you drank eight ounce, eight, eight ounce glasses of water a day, like they tell you to, it would take you 45 years to get the same amount of caffeine as there is in a cup of coffee. <laughs> um, so, so right now that's kind of where we are is that, you know, we're aware that these substances are there and we're aware that they're there in very, you know, low quantities. But, you know, the technology to be for us to be able to remove something like that just doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have an opinion on where kind of this pharmaceuticals and personal care products regulation is going to go? You know, I really don't. It's um, I think that we may at some point end up with regulations for specific compounds. Um, for example, triclosan. Um, that one's getting a lot of movement because there's you know definitely evidence of it building up in the environment. Um, but some of the others, you know. I just, I don't really know where it's going to end up because there's not really, you know, like I said, there's not really a technology for us to remove them. And unlike mercury, it's a lot more difficult to control these substances at the source because a lot of times, in fact, most times the source is human waste and it's human waste because people are taking medication or, you know, undergoing some type of medical treatment that is leading to these compounds being in the wastewater. We can't really prevent that or control that in any way, nor should we. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it starts running a fine line between, you know, human health and environmental risk. 
what kind of outreach within your service area have you done to make sure that people aren't throwing medicine down the toilet? We've worked with the DEA, and twice a year we do pharmaceutical collection events where we are a drop-off location where people could come and drop off any um, unused pharmaceuticals, and then they are actually turned over to the county where they're incinerated. Okay. Um, well, another kind of subset of the personal care products you mentioned were those microbeads. Can you tell mm-hmm. us a little, a little more about those? I can only tell you a little bit more about them because I only <laughs> know a little bit more about them. Um, last summer, it was the State University of New York did some sampling of Lake Erie looking for plastic pollution. And I think that they went out intending to find um, like bits of plastic bags and stuff like that. And instead they found microbeads that um, they linked these microbeads to um, different soap and cleansing products that, that had, you know, abrasives in them. And so there's, um, you know, they've been doing some testing, not us. Um, we've been we've been involved in it in that we allowed them to test our effluent, but we just did that, and so we don't have the results back. But, um, you know, we know that they're there, and we're starting to see some states working towards legislation to ban the use of plastic microbeads inside of these type of products. Hmm. So, well, but that's kind of where that stands. It's a, it's a relatively, for us anyway, it's a relatively new issue. Yeah, um, yeah, cutting edge. And it's also one of those things where we can test the affluent pretty easily to figure out what, you know, what type or, or what size of microbeads are in the affluent because the affluent is really clean. And so it's very easy to put a screen in and filter some effluent through and see what you trap. Um, we don't have a way to do that same thing on the influence um, because the screens would, because it's not clean, the screens clog too quickly. And so we can't even make a comparison of what is, you know, what is coming in versus what is going out. Right, right. Well, let's... At least not yet. We haven't figured out how to do that influence sampling yet. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, let's move on to that third category that you, you mentioned that you're looking at, and that's nutrients. Uh, obviously, this is a big issue. We, excuse me, we just had um, the algal bloom that affected Toledo. Uh, could you talk a little bit about, about nutrient issues in, in the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District area? Well, certainly. Um, Toledo is actually in the western basin of Lake Erie, and so the sewer district itself is located in the central basin. And so first it's important to understand that Lake Erie is the shallowest of the Great Lakes, and the western basin where Toledo is is even shallower than the central basin where we're located. But it is all the same lake. Um, You know, unlike the other Great Lakes, the turnover time in Lake Erie is only about two and a half years. So the, any um, anything that, that, you know, the water that goes into the lake, the residence time there is only about two and a half years because the lake itself has um, a lower volume than the other lakes. Mm-hmm. So that's, I mean, I think that's important to understand because it means that changes happen very quickly. Um, and a little bit, you know, maybe for folks that, that aren't as familiar with the Great Lakes issues, a lot of times when we hear about nutrient problems um, with the Chesapeake Bay or the Gulf of Mexico, we hear a lot about nitrogen. Um, and nitrogen is really important, 
But here in the freshwater ecosystem of Lake Erie, it's phosphorus that is driving the algal blooms. And so phosphorus is the limiting nutrient here. And so most of our focus is on um, controlling phosphorus. Okay. And, you know, what what are you doing to control phosphorus? And, and probably an even bigger question is where's that phosphorus coming from? Okay. Well, there's, we'll start with the second part. We'll start with where's <laughs> the phosphorus coming from. Um, and so because there's been, you know, a lot of looking into exactly where the phosphorus is coming from. And there's a lot of um, great research out there, some of it being done by the National Center for Water Quality Research at Heidelberg University, and then also um, the Ohio EPA and the Ohio EPA Lake Erie Task Force um, that have really looked into the total phosphorus going into um, Lake Erie. And so I'm going to give you some numbers here of what their data shows. Okay. Their data shows that um, about 20% of the phosphorus going into the lake is coming from point sources. And about 70% of the phosphorus going into the lake is coming from non-point sources. And then we have about 5% from the atmosphere or atmospheric deposition and about 3.5% coming in from Lake Huron. Okay. And, and so to break those down maybe just a little bit more of the 20% from point sources, about 10% of that is coming from point sources in Ohio. And when I say point sources, I mean, very simply, I mean sources with a pipe. But what it boils down to is um, facilities that have those NPDES permits that I was talking about earlier. Um, and so of the 20% coming from point sources, about half of that is coming from Ohio. Most of the Ohio point sources are wastewater treatment plants like ours. Um, in the non-point source category, where the 70% or so is coming from, it's mostly um, agricultural runoff, um, fertilizer, manure, and that type of stuff. So how are you working to control phosphorus from getting into Lake Erie? Okay, there's a couple things going on. Um, from our, specifically from the NERC side of things or the district side of things, we have... Um, Currently, our NPDES permit limits for easterly and westerly, which are our two plants that discharge to the lake, are one milligram per liter. Um, and But we're working, even though our limit is pretty low at that one milligram per liter, we're working real hard to try and um, reduce that discharge even further. So last year, our average for easterly was about 0.35 milligrams per liter, and westerly was about 0.5 milligrams per liter. So we're, you know, just trying to optimize our system to, to get as much phosphorus out as we possibly can. Um, our southerly plant, it has a lower limit because it discharges into the Cuyahoga River. And so the limit at southerly is 0.7. And the discharge for 2013 was about 0.28. So, you know, we're pretty proud of the fact that, that we're really working to optimize the system that we currently have in place. And the system that we currently have in place um, involves the addition of ferric chloride to help the phosphorus coagulate and settle out into our biosolids. Okay, okay. did you say ferrous chloride? Ferric? Ferric chloride, ferric chloride. okay. Mm -hmm. um, and so th it, that's great. It sounds like you're doing a terrific job in your system. Are you working with other wastewater utilities and other uh, entities on the Great Lakes, both stateside and in Canada, to to, to limit phosphorus getting into the Great Lakes? Okay, so, so there's a couple things going on. One is that in addition to what we're doing in our, in our wastewater treatment plants, we are also 
doing our project Clean Lake, which is our um, implementation implementation of our CSO control plan, which will help us reduce our combined sewer overflows. And that um, there's not a lot of phosphorus coming from our combined sewer overflows, um, but doing the the um, the project Clean Lake will even further reduce that. So right now our CSOs maybe contribute about 0.5% of the total phosphorus into the lake. And once our program is done, they'll be down to about 0.1. We're also working towards with our, in our service area, so with our, our 61 communities, we're working towards a stormwater program, um, which is right now is tied up in the courts, but that stormwater program will help us reduce urban runoff. And by reducing urban runoff, we can reduce, you know, some of the lawn fertilizers and things like that that could be contributing to the phosphorus problem in the lake. But it is also, you know, the fertilizer companies are also working towards reducing or eliminating phosphorus in um, residential fertilizers. So, so there's, you know, there's some work being done there. And then statewide, um, working with other utilities in the state of Ohio, we have what's called the Association of Ohio Metropolitan Wastewater Agencies. So it's um, you know public utilities such as ours who who work together on common issues, and so you know, we're working on a couple of things along that front. Um, one being trying to get a mass balance or just an accountability of where all of the phosphorus in our watershed throughout the state is coming from. You know, we have a good good idea of where it's coming from when we're talking Lake Erie, but we don't necessarily have that level of detail in some of our other watersheds. And so we're, you know, pushing for that on a statewide issue. And then I think that the what happened in Toledo has really drawn attention to what we need to do or that we need to do something with the agricultural runoff in Ohio. Mm -hmm. And now, yeah, exactly. Never, never waste a a good emergency um, or (laughs) never, never, never waste a crisis. Right. So what, what, what has uh, that Toledo experience? What's what, what do you see happening in Ohio as a result of, of the algal bloom in Toledo? Well, what I see is um, maybe a little more attention being drawn to the agriculture side. Um, point sources have been, especially the point sources to Lake Erie, there's always been a lot of attention, you know, on them and their contribution to phosphorus. And, um, you know, but starting pretty early in the, the late 70s, early 80s, the, the point sources, for the most part, reduced their phosphorus concentration to one milligram per liter. I'm not saying that there's not more that point sources can do because we've shown and we've been able to see that, you know, we can do better than that one milligram per liter, but point sources only make up 20% of the phosphorus coming into the lake. So we have to start looking at how do we reduce phosphorus coming from the other sources. And because Toledo is in the Western Basin and the Maumee River Basin, which is largely agricultural, it's starting to see folks looking at, well, what can we do to reduce the amount of phosphorus coming into the lake from these agricultural sources in the Maumee River Basin? So tell me a little about outreach with the Agricultural Committee and strategies uh, to reduce phosphorus runoff. So that's, it's a little bit outside 
outside of my realm of expertise and my involvement. But what I do know is that Ohio, the Ohio farming community does have a program that, that focuses on, you know, applying the right amount of fertilizer at the right time of year in the right quantity. Um, and there's one other thing, because it's four R's, and I can never remember what the other R is. <laughs> but uh, like I said, it's, it's not my realm of expertise here. But um, there are also, I mean, there's a lot of folks in the farming community that are really looking at what they can do as far as, you know, farming techniques or best management practices to help keep that phosphorus on the field, which is where they want it to be in the first place. And so, you know, what can be done to prevent runoff that, you know, is full of phosphorus from get or and nitrogen as well, but full of fertilizer, maybe we should say, from running into the lake. Okay. Um, how about the Ohio EPA? What what has it done in terms of uh, its biological, you know, water quality criteria that we've talked about and, and the link to nutrient criteria? Okay. So first of all, like I think it's important to understand that the Ohio EPA they, um, you know, since we're talking about non-point sources, too, the Ohio EPA can't give permits to these non-point sources. They can only give permits to the point sources. And so a lot of the focus on, you know, nutrient reduction to date has been, you know, from the Ohio EPA's point side of things, has been on the point sources. But Ohio is a little bit different than a lot of other states in that, we have water quality criteria for our rivers and streams that are based on biological attainment. And so what that means is that there are certain fish and certain bugs that should be living in our rivers and streams. And so how determines how healthy a stream is is based on whether it has those fish or bugs there. It's um, this tiered aquatic life use system that um, requires, you know, actual environmental monitoring of the fish and bugs in the stream to determine the health of the stream. And so Ohio has a, a nutrient reduction strategy that they're working on. And currently what they have is a um, nutrient, the Ohio EPA has a nutrient technical advisory group. Um, and it consists of 12 people and we're meeting actually on a monthly basis to figure out exactly how we're going to link that process of using biology to figure out if there's a problem in a stream to then determine, well, if there is a problem, is it a nutrient problem? And then, of course, the next step would be, you know, figuring out, well, if there's a nutrient problem, what do we do about it? Right. Okay. And kind of what's, you know, what's the next step you see coming out of that? So where that process is right now <coughs> is that they kind of, we have um, – it's the stream nutrient assessment procedure. Um, it's in a draft form. I'm getting ready to, to be presented to US EPA. Um, and it, it's like a decision matrix that, that helps you determine if the water body is impaired for nutrients or threatened for nutrients or if it's healthy. Um, and so now we're at this step in that, in, with that tag and figuring out, okay, if your water body is threatened or impaired for nutrients, what do we do next? And so, you know, starting to look at all of these implementation issues, you know, from little things like um, um, reducing permit limits to things like 
improving stream habitat to improve the assimilative capacity or how much nutrients that water body can process. Um, there's a lot of things that go into this implementation part of the issue. But I believe that Ohio EPA has a plan to have something finalized within the next, or have something, you know, a, a new rule, whether it's finalized or not, but have a new rule within the next year. Beth, you've been absolutely tremendous today. Uh, you've walked us through some important issues concerning our water, including pharmaceuticals and personal care products and phosphorus pollution in our water. Um, I thought it was interesting to hear about the microbeads issue in particular. I'd never heard of that issue before. And, and <laughs> like I said, it, it's a pretty new one, but you know, check your soap when you go. <laughs> I just want to thank you very much for sharing all your knowledge with us today. So to this, to the extent folks want to find out more about you in the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District, where can they go to find that information out? Um, the best place would probably be our website, which is www.neorsd.org, which is the North, it's www.neorsd, which is Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District.org. Or they can email me directly at T O O T hyphen L E V I E at N E O R S D dot org. Terrific. Well, Beth, thanks again for your time. Greatly appreciate it and uh, look forward to speaking with you soon. Okay, thank you. You bet. Bye. Bye. Well, that was my interview with Beth Toot Levy, and she was awesome. And I hope you learned as much as I did. Here are my takeaways from the interview. First, the issues arising from pharmaceuticals and personal care products uh, that are present in the water still involve a lot of unknowns in terms of their impact on humans. Uh, you know, we're aware of the damage that those uh, contaminants can, can cause to the um, in environment, uh, but again, we don't know the impact on humans. And related to the, the personal care products, I really thought the, the problems caused by the plastic microbeads were very interesting. I, I had not heard of that. I'd not heard of um, plastic microbeads as being a uh, problem contaminant before. Next, I found the regionalization of water treatment to be interesting. The Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District is made up of over 60 government entities, and it treats a huge amount of sewage. I think it's terrific that they've been able to forge a cooperative solution to wastewater treatment issues or asset water treatment issues. If you listen to session 27 with Donna Vincent Roa, uh, granted uh, the Northeast Ohio regional sewer district was formed by a court order initially, but it's been working now for over 40 years. And so they've ironed out a lot of the kinks that I'm sure were present at first. Um, and finally, my last takeaway involves phosphorus. As Beth indicated, phosphorus rather than nitrogen is the big contaminant that creates environmental problems in Ohio and Lake Erie. And the outreach and education efforts that the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District undertakes uh, will certainly pay dividends, I think, in the future, um, as well as the evolution of the fertilizer market with some manufacturers working to develop a fertilizer without phosphorus. Well, you can check the show notes out for this session at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod 28. And please don't be bashful in letting me know what interested you about the interview by leaving a comment on the show notes or by emailing me at david at thewatervalues.com. You can also tweet at me at DTM1993. And don't forget to rate and review the podcast, especially those reviews on iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast directories. 
And don't forget to tell your friends and colleagues about the podcast and to sign up for the Water Values newsletter, which can be done at thewatervalues.com. In closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource. So please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me. Thank you for tuning into the disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Colorado and Indiana, and this podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. And information in this podcast should not be considered legal advice. Further, this podcast is not a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer who finds water issues interesting and who believes greater public education about water issues is necessary. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.